0: You're listening to 103.5 FM WNHH Community Radio in New Haven, Connecticut. This is The Table Underground, and I'm your host, Tegan Engel. We're digging into stories of food, radical love, and creative social justice. We're over a month into the coronavirus lockdown, and the number of things to talk about around food and justice issues is totally overwhelming. This pandemic is having a serious impact on all aspects of our food system, from working conditions to empty grocery store shelves, farmers dumping veggies, milk, and eggs they no longer have customers for, and restaurants unsure if they'll reopen after months without income. I'm seeing lots of creative home cooking in quarantine, and so, so, so many people struggling to feed their families now that they're out of a job and food pantries are closed or low on supplies. This virus has massively amplified the long history of systemic racial and economic injustices that already exist in our society, and it's absolutely heartbreaking. There's so many things that are happening in my community though that give me hope, and last week I reached out to a few folks working in food in my hometown of New Haven, Connecticut, and asked them to share stories about how the pandemic is impacting their work in the food system. This show has three parts. You'll hear from a wholesale produce distributor, an urban farmer and food justice educator, and then some tips for cooking and quarantine from my home kitchen. First up is Maria DeSarbo, a second generation owner of Carbonella and DeSarbo's wholesale produce company. They've recently expanded into a new modern facility and a big part of their business is selling cases of fruits and veggies to universities and restaurants to huge sectors that are no longer purchasing food due to the shutdown. I reached Maria by phone.
1: Hi Maria! Hi, Tegan. How are you?
0: I'm good. Thank you for making time to do this.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to get our um, industry perspective out there. And it's been one of my favorite things is hearing how this is impacting other people. Just, I think it's a great opportunity to learn.
0: Yeah. So what's going on? You have a a big wholesale produce company. What's happening within your company and within the industry?
1: So it's been very interesting. We're a part of the business that people don't really – there's a lot of oversight as to the distributors. So we're all focused on restaurants being closed and potential food businesses going under with a lack of um, concern and not in a a way that there's a lack of empathy. It's just a lack of knowledge that this portion of the industry even exists. Um, But there are big distribution companies in Connecticut and throughout the area that supply these restaurants with their products. So given the quick nature that the government had to react um, to prohibit the spread of the COVID virus, um, a lot of people were just blindsided that are primarily food service based and they're sitting on these huge inventories. So while a restaurant may discard a $1,000 worth of product, certain businesses have well over a million dollars worth of inventory. Right, that is right. perishable and date coded, So the scope of the issue in the food business is very, very fast.
0: Yeah, and I know like one of your big um, markets is universities, which were some of the first places to shut down. So what happened for you with all of this inventory that you had in your warehouse? It's interesting
1: that you ask that. I have friends and family who are extremely concerned for our business and they want us to do the best we can possibly do. And so I've had a lot of suggestions to start a drive-up market or at-home delivery, but we have this inventory that's packaged for food service business. So while a consumer will go to the grocery store and buy an eight-ounce bag of clipped green beans, we have a 10-pound box with two five-pound bags in it. So it's a lot harder to translate food service inventory, um, over to retail. They're two totally different markets. Um, So that part's been interesting. And one day there was this phone call that I'll never forget where I was uh, just sort of complaining with a customer of ours. We were saying, wow, this is going to be a really bad situation. And I'm talking about the hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of produce that we have sitting here that we don't know what to do with yet. And this was in the very, very beginning. And he stopped me and said, Maria, I have more here in yogurt than you have in produce. And that's when it hit me that the scope of fiscal damage that certain companies will experience is far greater than what I had even realized.
0: Mm, yeah. And what did you end up doing with the huge cases of, of food? in the be- What was your first step in the beginning?
1: Well, fortunately, I feel like the public has done a great job of supporting their local restaurants and businesses, and keeping them up and running with takeout um, in, in any way they possibly can. So that helped to push some inventory off, and we were fortunate enough to have built a retail footprint, so a bunch of it was able to go to retail. We then looked at what was least likely to move, and we've donated it to the many, many um, areas of Connecticut that are being hit the hardest right now um, economically. So that felt good as well.
0: Yeah, so getting the food out to people who are hungry and, and through like emergency food networks. But where where specifically did you find places to bring food to? Because you're still talking about really large quantities of, of food that you had to donate.
1: So we had some local organizations in Brantford where we're based. Uh, we went throughout New Haven, um, up to Food Share in Hartford. Um, there's so many smaller organizations that we've reached out to. Uh, I have a girl, Mia, in our office who she's done an excellent job of really contacting even the smallest places, especially Mm. given that what we have here is so perishable. It's nice to try to hit the smaller places um, before this passes through, you know, two or three different organizations and sits for a day or two at each place.
0: Right. And so have you basically taken one or more of your trucks and just have them delivering donations to people instead of retail deliveries?
1: Yes, we have done some uh, deliveries strictly for donation, and then others we've integrated into other routes that we were already running. Um, you'd be surprised as the number of places that are actually still open and operating.
0: Hmm. And how is that going to affect your bottom line? Because that was food you had planned to sell originally.
1: We're still waiting to see if the Phase 4 package will be unrolled. Um, there is no insurance coverage for anyone um, there is no such thing as pandemic coverage, and wow. even the largest billion-dollar corporations um, in the world, they may carry a policy that would cover maybe ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars 30000 That's it. Uh, it's just too expensive, and a pandemic is so vast, it would put insurance companies out of business. So this is something we're still figuring out.
0: Yeah. Uh, we just keep I- track
1: of everything every day and do the best we can do.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm so grateful that you all are donating food and not letting it rot, which I know, you know, of course you don't want that to happen, but it's it's wonderful that you took the effort to do that. Um, how is this affecting your warehouse? Because I know you have a ton of food safety protocols as a distributor to make sure that, that everything is food safe. How are you managing, like with your workers, with your facility, how is this uh, pandemic affecting your warehouse and how you work?
1: This is something that we look at multiple times every single day. And as things progress and change, as they do throughout the day, um, we just continue to space people further out. Anyone who can work remotely, we, you know, will utilize that option. Um, But then we do have a warehouse full of inventory that we need people to jockey around and drivers that have to come in. We've now fully restricted even our own drivers from entering the building. It's not permitted. Um, any deliveries that we have coming in, nobody is allowed in this building. Our, the zones of the building have now been further restricted, so everything goes off the swipe card. And I've since augmented people's uh, restricted access to just the most vital parts of the building for their, their job. And we continue just to assess it day to day.
0: And how are you handling, you know, lots of people are talking about needing to wipe down boxes and produce and things to that... Nobody really seems to know exactly for sure how long the virus can live on any surface. How are you handling that in terms of produce coming in and going out?
1: The best we can do is keep our employees safe and keep our equipment clean. And the equipment is what's coming in contact with the pallet. Um, So we've provided gloves for the employees. We've increased the number of hand sanitizing stations. We're constantly reviewing where the sinks are and refilling soap dispensers. Um, We have wipes here so at the start of every shift and end of every shift we're cleaning down our um our equipment and then the employees have a full access to anything that they need to do so throughout the shift as they feel needed um and it's it's the best we could do it's it's pretty strange given that everything is shut down but this business will always have to run
0: yeah yeah it sounds really hard how how are your workers doing
1: be honest i feel like they come in here and they're so positive and they're thankful to be here thankful to still be working um i haven't seen a shift in morale um i know that sounds crazy given everything that's going on but we're really lucky we have a great team of people
0: Mm. and is there a way to give people um I know some places have hazard pay or bonuses or things like that. Is that something you're doing or something that the state is supporting you in doing?
1: There hasn't been any governmental support in that. And that's, in all honesty, something I've never even thought of before. You're always good with these ideas, Tegan. Um, <laughs> something I should bring up at our next meeting.
0: I like that idea. Is there anything else you want to share about how this has been going? I just feel like it's been fascinating to watch from strictly
1: in. Economics perspective and a supply-demand perspective. So just to paint a picture for the public, um, we sell a perishable commodity that's grown and things that will affect production literally, it depends on the weather. So the supply may not be low. It's just the, the markets are so volatile right now, and we're just watching things shift every single day. What would take a few weeks to occur is happening in 12 hours.
0: Can you give an example, like pick a crop and explain what, you've, what you're seeing?
1: Okay, so a popular commodity in this area are tomatoes. So ever since they first announced the shutdown of food service businesses, everybody in this area was stuck with tomatoes, thousands of them, and including us. You couldn't give them away for free if you wanted to. And all of a sudden, um, when, when companies stop making money on something, so these growers and the packing houses, it stopped being profitable their workforce, more importantly, feels uncomfortable going to work. So they just um, they close up and they stop shipping. When enough people do that, you now have a very, very tight supply. And even though the demand is not necessarily that high on these items, we're, we're finding that they're rising pretty quickly in price. And people are coming in for hundreds where before they weren't even interested.
0: So you mean that the people who are supplying your, giving you tomatoes that you're buying from, stopped sending them to you? So you were sort of, everyone was stuck with the supply that they had in their warehouses when the shutdown happened, and then the demand from them, from the retailers, went up afterwards. Is that what you mean?
1: This is more coming from the grower end of things. So there was no demand for this particular item. Um, And so as a distributor, we bought it from a supplier, it sits in our warehouse, and Nobody wants it because it's just it's a food service-based tomato, and there's no food service demand. There was an influx of it because the growers kept growing them, and they had planned out a crop for three months, and that just continues to come on. Well, eventually, the market hits a floor, and you just can't go any lower. So a lot of people said, okay, we're going to close up our company for a couple of weeks and wait for this to fix itself. And they may not open up for months. Who knows? But now your options of where to buy are a lot lower, and the supply mm. is a lot lower. The growers have decided, I'm not interested in doing this right now. It's not worth money. It's not worth the time. They're going to lose money on this. So now you see there's a very limited number of places to buy tomatoes from, and we're all sort of scrambling to get what we can get. Mm. All the while, there's um, a lot of distributors who have decided, okay, well, we're selling um to-go containers, napkins, frozen chicken, frozen meat. We're not interested in handling fresh produce because what I take in, I may not sell. It's sort of a risky business at this point. So a lot of larger companies have decided, I'm not handling that until this whole thing subsides. So demand for some of our other distributors that we sell to and for us as well has actually spiked.
0: So wait, I don't understand how it's spiked if they're not wanting produce.
1: Well, basically our... Some other distributors in the area have decided no longer to sell produce.
0: Oh, okay. So it's, going to, it's filtering into you because other people aren't selling.
1: Yeah, and this just happened really in the last week. Wow. So when I, I tell you, like, every day that I come to work, I don't know what I'm walking into,
0: ever. Yeah. It sounds really crazy. Maria, thank you so much for sharing all this. I think it's really important for people to understand this part of the food system and this part of the industry.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you giving me the time to share my perspective.
0: Be safe, take care, and I hope all your workers continue to be safe and well as as well. After our interview, Maria mentioned that one of the hardest calls she got during this time was someone looking to rent a refrigerated truck to hold dead bodies until they could be buried. She didn't offer her trucks, but it was absolutely heartbreaking to see this part of the reality we are facing. You're listening to WNHH 103.5 FM in New Haven, Connecticut. Disha Patel is a farmer and food justice educator at Common Ground School and Urban Farm. She works with the farm team and educators to engage students in learning about growing food, cooking, and the ways culture and systems of power impact food in their lives. On a normal school day, the Common Ground Farm provides food for the school cafeteria and a community farm stand. When school shut down suddenly on March 13th, the farm team and school staff had to figure out what to do with the farm and how to help all the students who were suddenly in need of food at home. I caught up with Deesha by phone in the midst of her super busy schedule. Hi, Deesha. Hi, Tegan. So I know that you have been working as a farmer at Common Ground, and I'm wondering as this virus was starting to spread and it looked like school was going to close soon, what happened at your school and at your farm?
2: yeah. That was when we were having, as a farm team, conversations with Deborah, who's our farm director, and Diane Litwin, who's our farm manager, and the three of us were just sort of thinking about what does this now mean for this abundance um, on our farm, right? We have spinach, we have kale, we have these chicken eggs, at least right now. Um, this is early season, it's spring season, and we will have so much more. So, like, even sort of these simple ingredients, you know, the purpose of our farm, first and foremost, is to be able to feed our common ground community and our students first and students and families first. And to know that now the kitchen and the school kitchen would now be closed and no longer necessarily be using any of this. What does this mean now um, for our cycle? Uh, and how is it that we can continue this? It just it just seems like then we're sort of coming against another like a food waste issue. Right. Which would never have been the case, but it, it just didn't seem like there would be any other option but to continue the work that we would have continued if there wasn't even a pandemic, which is just to start a farm share. So ultimately, you know, it was, okay, how, what do we have um, on the farm currently that's growing and how many families can we comfortably feed with that, with our one urban acre um, worth of produce right now um, in this early season where we don't really have much outside of just like leafy greens at this moment that's growing in our high tunnels. And we were able to just sort of like understand a number to that. And then that from there, we just took back to our support educators who sort of like are working one on one with our students day to day, tirelessly at all hours. Um, that really just like know um, each family uh, quite well in a way that, um, yeah, it's just like very personal and intimate and just beautiful to know that we as like a common ground school are able to just like hold and harbor um with relationships and so so sort of talking to them really recognizing like talking to victor rios and recognizing like who are these students who are these families um that we need to just support first
0: what how many shares did you end up packing
2: so it's changed from the first week until this week um the first week we had if you give me a second, I can give you the truthful, you know, odd number, <laughs> or I can just round and tell you that. Oh, well, it was just round. <laughs> um, it, it was around 25 shares at that time. So the first week, it was 25 shares, and we were able to provide, you know, um, a lots of greens, and um, we were able to provide our farm chicken eggs and um, Chabasso Bakery. We worked with them. And we have actually just been getting bread from them every week, even while school was continuing. Right. So, so one of the conversations we had with Chibasa Bakery was, was just had was, is there a way that we can just get what you usually gave was like these like, you know, like freshly baked loaves and like a large cardboard box, just like loose, with loose bread. Is it possible to just individually wrap it? So there's just like less hands, you know, sort of, um.
0: Right. So it's safer to get out to people. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly.
2: Um and so they were able to do that and they were able to deliver it and we still do this like what third week, fourth week at this point I've lost count.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think we're in our fourth, fourth week. I think now. we're
2: entering our fourth week now, right?
0: Um been
2: mm-hmm. we've been providing that as a supplement amongst so many other um collaborations, but for that first week it was it was just that. And then we we made um made a newsletter as well uh with the help of more staff members. Uh, which included information of the great work that the city of New Haven just like so quickly jumped on, which was like to create those like 37 food distribution sites.
0: Right. The school food pickup sites.
2: Exactly. And it was just the first week. Um, and so making sure that that information was distributed, making sure that that information was also bilingual and making sure that students just knew like sort of the basics of just like what, safety looks like, what health looks like, um, and what, like, early on material was coming out of that seemed accessible and that seemed to be more vibrant in colors and photographs and less words. Because I think that that has just been really exhausting for all of us. Um, uh, Is just to face all these words um, with this, <laughs> this, this, this thing, you know, that we're all yeah. still learning, no matter what yeah, level absolutely. of education we're at.
0: Um, so how did you get the shares of food from the farm and the bread donations out to students and families?
2: Well, recognizing, of course, just like the health and safety background behind it, which is we do not want to attract individuals to our farm, and we necessarily don't want to be putting other individuals at harm or just danger with their own health and safety on what we did was we amassed sort of like a group of volunteers, mainly that were coming from all facets of common ground community, whether they were teachers, whether they were support educators, farmers, um, a board member, or just friends of the school, and just having them individually just deliver out an X amount of shares that um, we had created root maps for. So it was just doorstep delivery, um, pick up from the farm. They had their route in mind, and then all they have to do is just call the family right before coming, and then just drop off those um, nourishments at their doorstep. Mm, that's
0: so great. And who were some of the other people that you partnered with in terms of over the you know, second and third week? Did you start to get donations from other places to increase the amount of food that you were bringing to people?
2: Yes. So outside of Chabasso Bakery, um, we had and have been continuing to partner with um, Haven's Harvest. Um, Haven's Harvest is really dope. They're like an early, like newborn, um, you know, food justice uh, intended and minded um, organization that really just believes that, like, there's great food out there and that it shouldn't be wasted. And it's just about. How is it that we as an organization can recover that food, whether it's from a grocery store, whether it's from a restaurant, whether it's from any other space, and pretty much use it to its fullest potential. So Trader Joe's has just been one area where we've just been continuously able to provide even more produce, and um, which has been just more fruits. You know, that's not something that just feels like so great to give fruits and to give cheese and to give dairy milk and uh, all of it is still sort of like abiding by sort of like our own principles of just what food justice means and that even during this time of emergency, we're not necessarily having to neglect our ideals of what um, good food, you know, is and should, should 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 always be.
0: Right. It seems so important that the emergency food, as we call it, like when people need food and can't get it, that it not just be the worst quality food. It's actually even more important, as you're saying, the justice angle of it is that people who are in need of nourishment and food should be getting the most nourishing food and that that is a right and it shouldn't just be like you know really poor quality food and so it's so special that you're getting fresh food out to people and then getting these other things like fruit and dairy and bread and other stuff that you can't produce on a New England farm in March (laughs) and April and so um, getting those things out to people is just so valuable as well.
2: Totally yeah it just feels like, it just feels affirming, right? It feels so affirming to just be able to still uphold your your ideals and just what the right to good food, local food, healthy food, sustainable food, you know, ecologically just, community driven food is, and just to be able to really, like, see that through a lens of health, too, right now. You know, it's it's beyond just sort of, like, nourishing and feeding this individual. It's also, like, reclaiming this spiritual and mental and emotional healing aspects of food um, which we're trying to tie in with all of the newsletters and just um, the, the sort of like paper information that we're supplementing with with these shares. Um, mm, so great as well. yeah
0: And how has the um, how have the shares grown like are you serving more families now?
2: Yeah yeah we are now at about 50 shares again, just estimating, but we are at about 50. And we're sort of like hitting this point as being this like one acre, again, urban farm, you know, still like in its early season spring of really just needing and applying actually to a lot of emergency grants with the hope that um, we can get them and we can start being able to procure more fresh food and more local food from farmers nearby, in a way to not only be showing solidarity for them, but being able to supplement even more food um, for our own shares. Yeah, we see this continuing. We don't necessarily like have a deadline to it or a marker of when it needs to end. This is this is this is continuing. Um, it's just how can we keep it sustainable and in a way that. Um, Is still going to be a nourishing whole meal for these families.
0: Yeah, thank you. Can you talk a little bit about the solidarity work that you're doing with some of the mutual aid groups that have um, been in existence and have popped up recently to address the needs in our community?
2: Yeah. um, There are two mutual aid um, networks that I have been a part of and just blessed to be a part of more so. Um, that have been just doing some really dope work, um, that I would love to just like uplift and y'all should support, um, or at least if you have capacity to volunteer for even. One is CT Core and the other is Samia Collective. And both of them, at least with my involvement, um, with them has been again through the same work, um, this mutual aid work, uh, that has been connected to just food distribution and food access to folks. Um so I have just sort of been helping, um, but they have been leading uh in ways that we can extend our food distribution sites all around New Haven and perhaps even farther, like seeping into West Haven and uh just be covering more neighborhoods. Um, because right now with common grounds work, um, we really are Focusing on, of course, like common ground students and families, um, which also includes folks that are not just students and families, but also folks that um, work for us if they need, um, and any support and also folks within the West Rock community as well. So, so working with Sumia Collective and CT Core, um, really is just a way of making sure that we're not necessarily like, overlapping um, on each other's efforts. But if anything, we are just like all in support of each other's efforts. We are all sort of like, you know, coming out of this emergence of just being really responsive and non hierarchical and outside of like any sort of existing structure that has been. And so just to be able to create a network that is able to mobilize immediately and without needing any permission And to be doing what folks like brown and black folks especially have been doing well before um, this quote unquote mutual aid support system um, or network even happened. Like that's just been the way that immigrant communities and all these marginalized folks have been just surviving and thriving um, in our histories. Uh, and just to, just to see that this is like now breathing and taking life everywhere, like beyond New Haven, but also all around Connecticut, um, especially with what CT Core has been doing. Um, has been just really incredible to witness. And I'm just hopeful that this will just like outlive this time as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's one of the things I'm thinking a lot of, many people are thinking about is how do we use this moment as an opportunity for pushing for the system change that many of us have been pushing for for a long time? But how do we come out of this with strengthened movements for seeing the change that we want to see happen so that people don't continue to suffer by through poverty and through other forms of oppression so absolutely. yeah
2: yeah and i mean there's so many great examples in our history too of of, of just seeing what has continues to breed because of mutual aid efforts you know you look at the work of like the black panthers and just the the free breakfast program that they started up or you know the sort of like food distribution services even like food like food um excuse me food not bombs right to the survival pending revolution programs um again, going back to the Black Panther program, um, Panthers, um, to the Black Lives Matter movement, right? All of this is still breathing, you know, in some way or not. And it's still, again, like just this response that when the state fails to meet the needs of us, you know, our communities, we need to build these resources ourselves. Um, We need to build an alternative to this hierarchical bureaucracy. Um, and so I'm just, I'm just really hopeful, um, amidst all this that by us continuing to rely on each other and building trust and capacity and to be able to, you know, create an alternative, um, that's founded on solidarity rather than charity and to be able to build deeply into our DNA that's made up of, you know, human cooperation and communalism and solidarity. You know, this is just seeing an aspect of humanity and what it looks like in practice.
0: Yes, absolutely. (laughs) So good. Thank you for sharing all that you've been up to and and how you're looking at this moment. Thank you. Thank you. In addition to all the great work that Disha mentioned, two local mutual aid efforts, CT Corps and the Samia Collective, are now packing up shares at the Common Ground Farm using COVID-19 safe food handling practices. Go to thetableunderground.com to see photos and get links to donate to both of these efforts led by Black and Brown folks and aimed at helping Black and Brown communities and immigrants hit hardest by this pandemic. For this last segment, I asked listeners to send in questions about food during the quarantine. Many people mentioned how hard it is trying to feed their households multiple meals a day while also trying to work and even help kids with school. And of course, there were questions about beans, glorious beans. Here are some cooking tips from my kitchen to yours. I wanted to share a few things that i've been doing to help keep folks fed keep it on a on a budget of course and also make it so that it's not so much work for each meal and we're still able to eat some nutritious food so one thing that's really helpful is finding a block of time maybe two or three hours if possible even a little longer to prep a whole bunch of food one day a week that can then be used throughout the rest of the week So for me, I'm still working Monday through Friday, so I have been doing some of this on the weekend, especially maybe a Sunday afternoon. So it can be really helpful during those times to cook up a whole bunch of beans, cook a pot of rice, and roast some veggies and and things like that, and maybe even make some dressings or sauces to then have the parts in the fridge and be able to put them together for different meals during the week. So one thing that I do is cook lots of beans, as I just mentioned. I have some red beans, some chickpeas, black beans, whatever kinds of beans you like. And uh, if you remember, it's great to soak them a day before. It makes them cook up better. But if you forgot, you can also put them on the stove and simmer them a little bit and then turn it off and let them soak for some time during the day and then cook them, keep the cooking going later in the day. So I'm just going to put some beans in a pot to soak. Those are some red beans. I'm gonna wash them a little bit. Now you do wanna look at beans and especially if you're making lentils, there's often little rocks that can be in the bag. So sort through those uh, first maybe on a cookie sheet, pouring a, a handful out at a time or just sorting them out. Make sure there's no rocks in there. For me cooking on the weekend, I'll put these things on to soak Saturday night and then they'll be ready for cooking on Sunday afternoon. It can be a little boring eating the same kind of bean every day. So if you have a few different kinds and you can cook a pot of red beans, a pot of black beans, and a pot of chickpeas, you could then do all the cooking at once and then split some of them into Ziploc bags or any kind of container you have and put them in the freezer. And so then you can have a variety, sort of like if you bought a bunch of cans of beans, but it's much cheaper to start with dry beans. And by putting them in the freezer, you're able to do all your cooking on one day, but then pull out some beans from the freezer to work with when you want to eat something different during the week. So for cooking my beans like this, I just add a little bit of salt or adobo, which is basically like a garlic salt powder, and put them on the stove, let them come up to a boil and then turn it down to a simmer. And let them cook for many hours. I check them periodically just to see how they're doing, and I try to stop them from cooking before they get mushy. So just when they're tender, um, it could be about three hours, but it really depends on the beans. Some some beans are bigger, smaller, and and take different amounts of cooking time. So just keep them at a simmer and and stop them when they're tender. And I've been just cooking them with salt and then seasoning them as I want for different purposes. But if you really like your beans cooked with a sofrito or with some veggies in them or tomato you can add some of those things the tomato especially towards the end of cooking so that it doesn't disrupt the way the beans cook there are so many good uses for beans but one of the things that I do real quick to make them taste good and give them a little sauce and this is like a little cheat version is a squirt of ketchup a little sprinkle of cumin and a little salt and pepper or adobo and you've got pretty nicely flavored beans Another thing that's great is to cook up a pot of rice if you have a rice cooker or you can do it in the oven or on top of the stove. I know a lot of people like to cook rice fresh for each meal, but I find it really helpful to cook three or four cups of rice at a time and then have it in the fridge in a container and pull out what I need for each meal. And one thing that's nice is if you reheat it in a frying pan instead of in a microwave, you can get that nice... um, crispy salty rice you can even add onion or scallion or something to it to add flavor sometimes they make a fried rice but it can be really delicious to to reheat rice and get to season it differently for each meal but it doesn't take that much time because you've already done the rice cooking in advance so another thing that can be really great is to make roasted vegetables you can do this with any veggie it could be onions carrots cauliflower peppers potatoes anything you have, especially if you happen to be getting food from a food pantry or a box delivered through an emergency food service, and you might be ending up with some vegetables that you've never seen before, don't even know the names of. If it's something sort of hard, like a root vegetable, those can be especially great for roasting because when you put them in the oven, they get nice and caramelized and, and it increases the deliciousness of the vegetable. So to roast veggies, you want to turn your oven on to 450 degrees. And then you're going to chop your veggies up into bite-sized pieces. You can sort of do this however you like. Just make sure that they're all similar size. So for carrots, it can be really great to cut them into carrot stick type pieces. And then throw them all into a bowl. Toss on a little bit of olive oil or any other oil that you have in your kitchen enough oil to give a coating around all the vegetables, and then toss them up. Sprinkle on some salt and pepper, and you really could put on any seasonings you like. So if you have any kind of seeds like um, cumin or caraway seeds, or you have curry powder, or any other seasoning that you like, fennel seed, you're welcome to use any of those. You can also just keep it simple with salt and pepper. If you're blessed to have some smoky paprika in the house, that is a delicious addition as well. Then you're going to put those out on a baking sheet whatever you have like a cookie sheet a glass baking dish even just a, a good skillet an oven safe skillet like a cast iron skillet or something else that doesn't have a plastic handle and then put it in the oven you want everything to be in a single layer so that it roasts and it doesn't steam in the oven and then cook it until it's nice and brown I usually check things and move them. If they're on a bottom shelf, then the bottom's going to get very brown, and then move them up to a top shelf so that the top gets brown or bake them in the middle of the oven. And if you have more than one sheet of things that are roasting, you can rotate them through the oven so everything cooks evenly. I tend to cook things on separate sheets. So if you're doing cauliflower and carrots and... Potatoes or any other kind of vegetable, you might want to cook them each on separate sheets because the baking times might be a little different. But if you only have a few of each one and you want to put them all together in a pan and roast them together, that also can be great. Feel free to add some onion if you do leave it in big chunks because it's going to cook more quickly than most of the vegetables. And garlic, of course, if you have it. I've been guarding my garlic very carefully because I'm running low, so I haven't been putting it on roasted veggies, but I've been using it for a dressing afterwards. So once these come out of the oven, I let them cool and then put them in a container. And I try to keep them each separate so that we can use them differently for different meals during the week and put them in the fridge and they'll last easily for four or five days if you don't eat them all (laughs) too quick. So these have been great to eat with rice. Sometimes we put them into a tortilla. I've even chopped up some of the carrots or I had one little squash that I chopped up and put in with some lentils. At the end of the week, I was running low and just had a little bit of everything, and I made uh, a frittata. So I put them in a cast iron skillet. Uh, I had a little bit of lentils left over, one or two pieces of kale. Um, It was kind of all the little odds and ends that were left and put them in a skillet, warmed it up, seasoned it, and then scrambled up a couple eggs and a little water and put it in the skillet and put a little bit of cheese on top and made a frittata. But if you're trying to avoid eggs or you don't have any or trying to save them, These things are also just great to eat mixed with whatever else it is you have in the house. For one meal, you might have the carrots. Another meal, you might have the cauliflower. You might throw some of them in a pan with coconut milk and some curry powder. Another time, you might eat it in a tortilla. Another time, you might toss it up with some hot sauce. Really, anything you wanna do with it is great. It just gives you some things to make meals during the week a lot easier. What can be really helpful is to make a homemade dressing. This really can be any flavor and any ingredients that you have. You basically want something with acid, something with oil, and something with other kind of flavoring. So you might start with a clove or two of garlic. If you have any fresh herbs like parsley or basil or even dandelion greens, if you pick them from outside in a, in a place where the soil is not contaminated, um, those all can be great. But you also could use any kind of dry spices, again, curry powder, cumin, coriander, fennel, Um, anything you like and any kind of acid so if you have some vinegar lemon orange uh, even mustard is a great thing because it has vinegar in it and adds a lot of flavor and just put all that stuff into a blender if you have it or chop it all up by hand or or mash it in a mortar and pestle and keep that in the fridge it's a great thing to toss on your roasted veggies through the week or to season your rice with if you don't really have salad, though, that can be a dressing to use for other things during the week. Another thing I like to do with beans is make hummus. It can be pretty expensive to buy containers of hummus from the store if you're even able to get out to the store. But if you have dry chickpeas and you can soak them and then boil them till they're tender, making hummus at home can be great. You're definitely lucky if you have a blender or a food processor at home, but if you don't, you could make a version of a hummus that's more like a chopped chickpea salad, which can still be great to dip things into or to spread on a tortilla or bread. So cook up a bunch of chickpeas, and if you end up with about three cups of cooked chickpeas, you can put those into a food processor or blender, add two or maybe three cloves of garlic, depending on how garlicky you like it, and... Add a few tablespoons of olive oil, some salt and pepper, and I love to add some lemon zest and lemon juice, at least from one lemon. If you're running short on lemons, you could also use a little bit of vinegar. And then blend all that until it's really, really smooth. If you happen to have tahini, that is what is traditional to put in hummus, which it's it's a sesame seed paste. I don't happen to have any tahini in the house, but I did have some sesame seeds. So I added some white sesame seeds into my chickpeas and blended it up. It gave it a little bit of that flavor, but if you don't have it, it's still great without it. You can keep this in the fridge and then it's a great thing to give kids as a snack with some carrot sticks or celery sticks, or again, to spread on a tortilla with some roasted veggies to make a simple meal. So I could go on and on with these kind of things because I love cooking and getting creative in the kitchen and trying to figure out how to do it with the least amount of time so I can do everything else I got to do and have things be healthy and delicious. So feel free to write me any questions you have about cooking either on the website, thetableunderground.com or on any social media, and I'll try to get back to you or include your question in a future podcast. I hope some of these cooking tips are helpful for you and help you get through the coming days with a little more ease. For more info about everything in this show, go to thetableunderground.com. You'll find links, photos, recipes, as well as ways to take actions on our website. Many thanks to Taina Asili and La Banda Rebelde for the music that we use during this show. And thanks, as always, to the Passion Hi-Fi for our theme song. And I want to share one more thought. If you receive a government stimulus check and you don't really need it to survive please consider donating some or all of it to people who desperately need it to live and won't be receiving government aid. There are links on our website for CT Core, Samia Collective, and CT UndocuFund. All of these are run by grassroots activists with deep personal relationships in the communities they are working with. Check out mutual aid groups or grassroots organizations in your areas, or ask around to connect with people directly in your community in need of support. May our ancestors, many of whom survived horrific events in history, continue to protect us and help us through this challenging time. May we each find ways to act in this moment that supports justice and life for all people. May we be vulnerable to ask for help if we need it. May we give the help that's needed even when it's hard. And may we work together to bring about the change that's needed so that everyone has what they need to thrive. We'll go out with the song Abeha, which means Fruit of Hope from Taina Asili. I'm Tegan Engel and this is The Table Underground. Thanks for listening. you You're listening to WNHH 103.5 FM in New Haven, Connecticut.